Welcome to Premium Cashflow Real Estate Investing Podcast with Sakar Kali. During this program, you will hear guest experts sharing their experiences, best practices, and market insights. We discuss investing in multifamily apartment complexes and how a busy professional can passively invest hassle-free in various opportunities. Your host, Sakar Kali, owns millions of dollars of assets and has done thousands of value-add projects over 20 years now. So listen in for insights. Here's your host, Sakar Kali. Welcome to another edition of Premium Cashflow Podcast. Today, I am delighted and honored to welcome Anthony Sharov with Success Classes uh, to our show. Anthony, welcome to the show. Thanks, Sakar. I'm glad you invited me. Awesome. I appreciate it. Uh, Anthony, a uh, little bit about him. Anthony is an experienced real estate investor. He is a mentor as well. After starting his uh, corporate career for decades, he moved to real estate and has been exclusively investing in apartments and multifamily uh, since uh, 2014. So far, he's invested and syndicated thousands of apartments. He's supported a lot, many students, and we are here to kind of delve into his story and learn some of the advice and experience from him. So, Anthony, without taking uh, much of your thunder, um, you know, I have personally uh, seen you and observed uh, the success and uh, have kind of always wanted to speak to you. Uh, if you can kindly share uh, some of your background and we can uh, kind of delve into the details as well. Sure, I can do that. Thanks, Sakar. So first off, one quick correction. I've been doing apartments since 2004. Sure. Mm -hmm. So it's been a lot longer, about 15 years now that I've been doing it. But I awesome. started out in I started out in the corporate world with a company called Bell & Howell. Mm -hmm. Started out with them way back in 1981. Worked for them about 16 years. Started just dragging a rag through electromechanical equipment, very dirty equipment, and then worked my way up literally with a high school education. And by the time I left 16 years later, mm -hmm. I was running a $3 million department with a, a 35, yeah, 35 technicians in seven states fixing electromechanical mailing equipment mm -hmm. and just got burned out by doing all the traveling with them. I was looking for something else. Sure. Mm -hmm. Didn't really love my job anymore. So I went through a variety of different companies, started them, sold them, that kind of stuff. And then got sure. into real estate investing. Actually, my wife and I started doing real estate investing in 1993. Mm -hmm. And we did that for about 10 years. But all we knew back then was single family holds, buy and holds. Sure. We didn't mm -hmm. know anything else. Mm -hmm. And met a mentor, Robert Allen, who a lot of people have heard of. Sure. He wrote a book called No Money Down. Absolutely. So mm -hmm. Learned from him and some of his instructor, instructors how to do wholesaling, fixing and flipping. Uh, even uh, apartments and short sales. And what sure. I learned from the first three, the wholesaling, the fixing and flipping and the short sales, short sales just, I never went anywhere because it was too hard to get a hold of the right people. Sure. Mm -hmm. But wholesaling and fixing and flipping, to me, that was just too much of a job. Literally, you'd go out, you'd do the job, you'd get paid pretty well. Sure. But then it was done and you had to go look for another job. Absolutely. So mm -hmm. started doing apartments with a, another partner of mine, a guy named George, and just liked the fact that the checks were bigger and the money kept coming in and it was bigger than what we were making with our single family homes, which were also buy and hold. Sure. Mm -hmm. We've probably got eight to 10 single family homes and condos started getting into apartments in 2004, partnered with a developer in our first deal, which was 344 units in Tucson in 2005. Mm -hmm. 
been going ever since then. I realized George and I decided in 2006 to put our own class together because there was a lot of stuff that was missing from other classes and books Mm -hmm. that we had read. Mm -hmm. And we've been teaching, or I've been teaching a one-day workshop and a four-day boot camp for the last uh, 12, 15 years now. So I really love it and I keep on doing it. And now over the 15 years, I've owned or have owned approximately 2,000 units, a little over 2,000 units. Incredible, incredible. And I think you are one of the uh, rare folks, uh, Anthony, that who has, uh, you know, sort of seen that decades of experience. And by the way, your timing of entering into the market, uh, you know, of course, considering the 08 crisis and things like that. So you had a prior start and then, you know, you saw the, uh, sort of the financial meltdown of 08, 09. And then, you know, obviously you probably have seen the opportunity and, uh, you know, I can imagine like how, how good must have come out of it, you know? Uh, so kind yeah. of, you know, going back to your uh, sort of multifamily story, uh, Anthony, uh, what, what are some of the things that you like, uh, you know, considering that you, you have done fix and flips and buy and holds and things like that as well, why you sort of prefer the multifamily medium uh, uh, so much? Yeah, great question. So one of the reasons I love multifamily more than just single family homes, by the way, I'm not, I don't suggest that people stop buying single family homes. You sure. do need to diversify. <laughs> sure. So I have a portfolio of apartments and single family homes. Mm-hmm. And the reason for that is because sometimes you do need some extra cash and it is or can be easier to refinance a single family home or sell it just because there's more people out there interested in buying those products. Sure. There are mm-hmm. less people with apartments. But one of the main things I love about apartments is I actually have more control over the value of the property than I do with a single family home. Certainly Mm -hmm. with a single family home, you can go in and you can put on a new roof, you can fix up the interior, you can paint it, but that's not necessarily going to make it more valuable. It's going to sell for whatever similar properties in the area have sold for. But with an apartment complex or other commercial properties, because we also have ownership, a partial ownership in a, uh, um, hotel down in actually in the country of Belize with the mm-hmm. Hilton Hotel. Sure. Mm-hmm. The more income you can generate with that property, the more valuable it makes that property to other investors. Sure. Mm-hmm. So that's one of the things I like about it. If I control the expenses, if I increase the income even even slightly, and we can go through some of the math if you'd sure. like to, mm-hmm. you can increase the value of the property exponentially within a very short period of time. Sure, sure, sure. I love that aspect. And I, and I think certainly uh, you are uh, indicating, you know, obviously the net operating income, whether you are increasing the rents, reducing expenses, things like that, and sort of that uh, cap rate formula, as uh, folks are aware, uh, can really play to your benefit based on, you know, how much of the operating income we are increasing, right? So yes. now, uh, Anthony, you reside in Denver, uh, as you shared earlier, and you are obviously investing in a lot of different states and things like that. Can you maybe perhaps share, Anthony, that what goes into sort of evaluating, uh, you know, different markets and then sort of going a step further, evaluating those sort of close pockets, as we call sub-markets uh, within those? Sure. So certainly one of the things that I tell my students is the first thing I look at is you can, you can look in your own backyard, absolutely, because it's nice and close and easy for you. But sometimes, like with me, I couldn't find any properties that work for me in Denver. And now prices have just gone through the roof and they're even worse shape. So I'm going to wait for the market to settle down and maybe come back a little bit, pull back a little bit before I start looking in Denver again. 
ask, but uh, I, through a variety of sources, I will find deals in other states. Sometimes or most of the time it's through brokers because I create relationships with brokers in those markets. Sure. And then mm -hmm. what they do is they bring deals to me that I can evaluate. And so what I do is I'll tell my students, you know, find a market you want to invest in first. Mm -hmm. Don't worry about finding a deal, find the market and analyze the market first. Sure. And that could be a market where you want to travel to. Like me, I've got a lot of properties down in the South in Florida, Arizona, and Texas. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons for that is, I want to be able to get out of Denver in December, January, and February and sure. go someplace and warm up so I don't have to wait for spring to show up. Sure. I can get out of town and take a business trip. Sure. So I start with a place that I want to go to. And for you or anybody listening, it could be a place where you want to visit. Maybe you like to visit. Maybe you have relatives there. Sure. Mm -hmm. And as long as you, if you do have relatives and as long as you finally follow the IRS guidelines and you can talk to your CPA about what you need to do, mm -hmm. A lot of that, if not all of it, could potentially be written off as a business trip. I see. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. that's one of the things that I look for. Then once I find a market or a, or a particular property within a market, mm -hmm. I start looking around and checking out some of the things in that particular area. I want to see what the median household income is in that mm -hmm. particular area. Mm -hmm. I want to check on the crime rate in the area. By the way, mm -hmm. every area is going to have crime. Sure. I want to make sure there isn't too much violent crime or drug activity or gang activity. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And just very quickly, there's a couple of different websites you can go to. You can go to cityprotect.com. You can go to spotcrime.com. You can even just do a Google search and say mm -hmm. crime statistics and then put in the city and state of mm -hmm. the location and different mm -hmm. websites will come up sometime directly sure. to uh, the police departments. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, other things that I look for, I want to know... Um, how the population is increasing in that particular area. It needs to be increasing by a certain amount. If it's not increasing or it's increasing very, very slowly, mm -hmm. that's not necessarily good for investing because you need a lot of growth. You need a lot of people moving in. That's what really drives up and ramps up the values. Sure. Because the more people that move in and the less uh, properties they have to rent, the quicker your, your, uh, income stream is going to go up because you're going to be able to raise rents because people sure. don't have a lot of choices. Now, as builders ramp up and more inventory comes on, you might have to make some adjustments, sure, but it's sure. another thing to look at. Um, I also want to look at the poverty level in a particular area. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I want to make sure that people that live there have enough money to actually pay the rent when the rent is due and not struggling month in and month out. Sure. And then one of the last things I look for is I want to look at what the median rent is in that particular market. Because once mm -hmm. again, you can have pockets around and literally I was working with a student yesterday and we were looking at a pocket in Cincinnati. Mm -hmm. And one of the areas where he was looking at a property, the median rent was something like $346 a month. Wow. That's mm -hmm. ridiculous. And the poverty sure. level in another neighborhood just next to it was over 29%. Wow. So mm -hmm. one of the things that we talked about was the fact that the people that live there are constantly going to be struggling to pay the rent. And he might want to look for another area, maybe nearby, but sure. certainly uh, there's some things that you need to take into consideration before you start investing in those markets. Sure, sure. Thank you. Thank you for that detail, Anthony. And also, you know, I'm sure those speaking of, you know, the sub markets and very modest rents, perhaps the high, uh, you know, poverty level that brings in that churn as we talk about that, you know, people are constantly in and out, your delinquencies perhaps going through the roof. And now to the other side is we call sort of the 
B plus A class type of uh, areas or a, a type of assets and things like that. And, and the question comes, Anthony, is perhaps is that how do we sort of protect ourselves in from uh, sort of overpaying perhaps or trying to get into B class uh, or B plus assets, I should say. Uh, some of them are very pricey, right? So where I'm going with that, Anthony, is that how can someone sort of uh, underwrite some of these deals properly so that they are not overpaying on one hand uh, and at the same time, you know, just sort of making sure that the investor returns are met and, you know, like the property will perform as you think it will. Can you maybe perhaps share some of your thoughts on that? Sure. Well, how much time do we have? <laughs> there, there's, there's a lot that goes into the question that you asked. Sure. So mm. it, it's, you know, one thing certainly is the purchase price and I'll have students that'll, that'll come to me and they'll say, well, I, I found this deal, but it's, it's $150,000 per unit. Wow. That's really high. And it's like, sure. it's, it's all relative. Sure. Sure. It's not about whether it's $50,000 per unit or $150,000 per unit. The bottom line is what kind of overall returns do you get? Sure. And if mm -hmm. you can spend $100,000 per unit and get a better quality neighborhood and a better quality resident, than buying twice as many units for $50,000, sure. but still get the same returns, wouldn't mm -hmm. you be interested in that? Sure. Because mm -hmm. chances are with the, the lower price points on the units, you're gonna have lower quality residents. Not that there's anything wrong with that. They, as sure. long as they pay the rent, that's the important part. Right. But mm -hmm. sometimes in the lower end neighborhoods, you have people like we talked about earlier that are constantly struggling to pay their rent. Sure. Mm -hmm. which means it's a constant battle. Your property manager's always trying to chase people down or you have people that move out in the middle of the night mm -hmm. and then they're filling up the units and you have a lot more turnover. So it's not really about the price point or, or, or overpaying. Well, it is about overpaying is if you're not getting the numbers and the returns that you need. Sure. So certainly some of the key things you want to look at is for me, the absolute minimum I want to get on a property, and this is the minimum, this is just, and I talk about in my classes, there are seven steps to buying a property. Mm -hmm. This is just one metric that I look at to go from looking at a property to actually putting in an offer. It still mm -hmm. doesn't mean I'm going to buy it. Sure. Mm -hmm. But in order to go from step A to step B to even consider putting in an offer, I want to make sure that on my initial underwriting mm -hmm. that I want at least $1,000 per unit per year in cash flow. Now, okay, $1,000 per unit per year. So annual cash flow per unit should be like a thousand minimum, you're saying? Correct. Now that, again, that doesn't mean I'm gonna buy it. Certainly sure. in some lower end properties, $1,000 is plenty, but sure. in a higher end property, if it's 100 to 150,000 per unit, $1,000 per unit per year may not be enough. Sure, and sure. Keep in mind, cash flow is after we've paid all of our debt payment, our taxes, insurance, management, maintenance, utilities, even putting aside reserves. That's after all of those things. This is money I see. that we're setting aside for me. This is the net, net cash flow you're saying. Correct. So this is all profit, right? This sure. is all profit. Mm -hmm. uh, and it also depends on the size of the unit. Certainly $1,000 per year on a one bedroom is much better than $1,000 per year in a two bedroom or a three bedroom. Mm -hmm. So it's just a starting point. Sure. Certainly, if you want to raise your own particular goal, your own rule of thumb above that, you're absolutely welcome to do that and encouraged sure. to do that. Mm -hmm. But you're also probably going to cut down on some of the properties that you might be interested in investing in, mm -hmm. which, is, which isn't a bad thing either. I, I have a lot of people that I'll meet that are used to doing a lot of wholesale deals or fix and flip deals. And they'll come up to me and they'll say, oh, I, I did 10 deals last year. How many do you do? And I said, well, I did one and I bought 150 unit property. 
So mm -hmm. it's not about, right? It's not about sure. the number of deals you're doing. It's about mm -hmm. the quality of the deal that you're doing. Sure, sure. Um, so the other things that I look at, certainly there's something that you're probably familiar with, Sakar, which is the debt service coverage ratio. Sure. Mm -hmm. That's a number that your lender wants to see, and it mm -hmm. usually needs to be at least 1.25. That means that you have enough income coming in mm -hmm. to pay your debt service. Mm -hmm. Plus, if it's 1.25, that 25, the 0.25 means that you have 25% more than what you're paying the lender sure. in the form of cash flow or profit after the fact. Sure, sure. So the higher you can get your debt service coverage ratio, 1.25 or even higher than that, the better it is. Sure. And then of course, the last thing, the main thing I want to look at, uh, well, actually not the main thing. There's actually a, a couple other things, but one is the cash on cash return. How hard is my money working for me? <laughs> the higher my cash on cash return for me and my investors, mm -hmm. the harder our money's working, which means we're putting in less money and making greater returns. Sure, sure. And there, there are other factors too. And as I mentioned, it depends on how much time you have. Because sure, sure. It's, it's not just about those things. We look at, do we have the possibility of raising the rent? Do we have the possibility of lowering or controlling the expenses? Sure. Mm -hmm. Some of those things you have to know before you buy the property. Mm -hmm. Because if you bought it as is, hoping to raise the rent or hoping to lower the expenses, you might be very disappointed and your investors might also be very disappointed in the sure. overall returns of the property. Sure, sure. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. And, and also then, Anthony, uh, speaking of concrete, like sort of the criteria, for example, uh, what size or what vintage of properties you look for? And perhaps you were mentioning the uh, some of the uh, sort of the parameters of uh, returns like cash on cash or uh, internal rate of return and things like that. Uh, what are some of the things you kind of uh, specifically target and the returns you look for? So one of the things that I tell people is I will not tell you what I look for for cash on cash return. Mm -hmm. And the reason I do that, cause I have, I, I used to do that years and years ago. And then what mm -hmm. I found <clears throat> were that students would only go out and look for deals that satisfied me. Mm -hmm. And that's not what you should be doing. Sure. You know, I, I think it's because a lot of people look at me and they think, well, because you're teaching these classes, you must have the magic formula you know, everybody has their own magic formula. Sure, sure. So one of the one of the things that I do in one of my classes is I put up a sample property, and on that particular sample property, it shows a an a, a cash on cash return of eight mm percent. -hmm. Just just to put up a number. Sure, sure. And I tell people, I was like, look, you've you've done all your research, you've done all your due diligence, you like you love the neighborhood, you love the property, you love the condition of the property, you've got the right financing in place. You only have one decision left to make. And that one decision left to make is you're going to get an 8% cash on cash return, not including appreciation, depreciation, or equity buildup. Mm -hmm. Just mm -hmm. straight cash on cash is 8% enough. Sure. And literally, I'll have anywhere from 50 to 90% of the hands in the room go up saying, yep, 8% is great. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, if I turn that around and before I did that exercise said that I'm looking for, and I'm just throwing this out there, this is sure. not necessarily not my target. But if I threw it out and said I was looking for a 9% cash on cash return, how many of you would be interested in this deal, right? Nobody's going to raise their hand because now it's like, oh, well, you just said you're looking for nine. So that must be the right answer. So now I no longer want eight. <laughs> it's all personal information. It's personal return. It's based on what you personally need. And if you've got money sitting, you've got a hundred, two hundred, three hundred thousand dollars sitting in a bank making 0 0.1, 0 0.2, 0 0.3% interest. <laughs> and you can pull that out and make eight. 
plus appreciation, plus depreciation, plus equity buildup, mm -hmm. you can end up with IRRs in the high teens, even low 20s sure, on sure. your properties. Sure. So, so to a very long answer to your question. I won't tell you what I'm looking for for returns. No, no, I, I got the gist that it's, it's all yeah. based on personal tolerance, what perhaps the market is, uh, you know, what sort of your risk appetite yeah. is as well. And I get the gist of what you're saying there, Anthony. And also, Anthony, speaking of like, let's say the underwriting principles and things like that, uh, what are some of the sort of the high level things you advise students, like whether it is expense ratios or, you know, like we could go on and on as far as the, the roofs, the boilers, chillers, uh, you know, any deferred landscaping or deferred exterior maintenance, things like that. What are some of sort of the telltale signs or red flags uh, sometimes you kind of share uh, with folks that uh, we should look for? So great question. So you definitely need to do a proper inspection of the property. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I do is I walk the property myself because I've been doing it for, I don't know, since 93. So what is that? 27 years, I think. <laughs> so I've been looking at a lot of apartment buildings, a lot of single family homes, sure. a lot of condos. So I'm very comfortable walking through a property and looking at things. Sure. It doesn't mean occasionally I still miss something, but sure, sure. Uh, I, I'm pretty good at doing it. But then if I do notice something that doesn't look right, I will have an expert or a couple of experts come in and check it out. Sure. Uh, as an example, you're talking about boilers. Of course, boilers heat up the hot water that go through the units that heat the units in the wintertime. We had a couple that were leaking. Well, I, I had a, I actually learned this from an inspector on that inspection. It was two different buildings, two different boilers, and both of them had leaks. Well, we looked in one and he showed us, he said, well, see this leak here. And this was back when I was still learning about inspecting this type of stuff. And that's one of the things I would recommend. You actually follow your inspector like a sure. shadow and sure. literally just be looking over their shoulder. And if you don't know what they're doing, ask them. It's like, what are you doing? What are you checking? Sure. Well, what he showed us was that one of the boilers was leaking. He said, this leak here is probably not a big deal because of where the leak is coming from. It was coming from one of the connections. <laughs> and then we looked at the next one and he couldn't actually tell where the leak was coming from, but he was oh, concerned <laughs> that it was coming from the tank itself. Sure. <laughs> well, the first one he said, you probably just have to have tightened up, but this one you need to actually get a boiler inspector in here because chances are it could become a major problem. Sure, sure. And, and it could be. So certainly you want to check the boilers. You want to check the roofs. You want to have a couple of good roofing contractors come out and, and walk on the roofs, not just look at it, but actually get up there and walk on it, look in the attic and things like that. They're looking for, for leaks. Uh, we found one that, um, you know, up on the roof, it looked great. But when they went in the attic, actually, I went in the attic with one of my students and the interior was all burned because they oh, had had a fire. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. some of the trusses, I think they're called trusses, they, they weren't replaced properly, which I'm not sure how the insurance company or an inspector would pass that, but they needed to be replaced. Mm -hmm. We ended up backing out of that deal because they didn't want to do that. It was going to be too expensive. Mm -hmm. um, the other big things you want to look at are things like the parking lot and even the drainage of how the water on the property drains off the property so that it's not going into the buildings, it's going away from the buildings. Of course, that depends on the area. In Colorado, you want it to drain away from the buildings. I've heard that there are places in Texas where you actually want the water and the grass and the sprinklers right up against the building to keep the, the soil from drying out. Sure. <laughs> so you have to learn your area. Um, sure. Other big things, hot water heaters, air conditioning units, elevators, pool equipment, the pools themselves, they all need to be checked by good quality people. 
Sure, sure. Uh, now, speaking of property management, uh, Anthony, there, uh, what is sort of your methodology? Are you perhaps doing third party property management or you recommend students that after you get certain scale, look into sort of uh, doing an in house operation? Uh, what are some of your thoughts on that? Yeah, it covers the gamut here. Oh, very quickly, I know one of the earlier questions you asked as far as what I target. So right now I'm targeting as far as size of buildings. Mm -hmm. Me personally, I'm looking at 100 units and up because I'm at that position now where it's, it's a lot easier, more comfortable to do 100 units and up simply because you can have your own on-site management right there. Sure. The mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, one of the things that I teach my students is if you, if you love managing your own properties, mm -hmm. you can certainly keep doing it. Sure. But mm -hmm. I do recommend third party management. And I know some students, when I talk to them and say, you should have third party management, they'll say, oh, I can't find a good management company. I won't make enough money, blah, blah, blah. I've heard all the excuses. Mm -hmm. Number mm -hmm. one, if your thought process is, if you have a third party management company, you won't make enough money, you're buying the wrong property. Because sure. if you're mm -hmm. analyzing and underwriting your apartment buildings correctly, management is already built into the numbers. Mm -hmm. So even if you do love managing your own properties mm -hmm. and you want to manage your own properties, that's fine, but you still need to put those numbers into your, your expense numbers. Sure. Because if you don't put those into your expense numbers, then you're going to have an artificially too high net operating income line. Sure. Which means you're going to be overpaying for the property. Okay. So number Absolutely. one. So, so again, if, if, if for me, I've got a couple single family homes and condos that I do manage myself because they're pretty much on uh, autopilot. I sure. mean, literally, I, I have, I'll send out a lease. I'll get a signed lease back from the existing resident with 12 checks already in the envelope Wow. <laughs> for the entire year. So hmm. all I literally have to do is go to the bank or on my phone at the first of every month and deposit them. Sure. With all of my apartments, I have third-party management in place. Mm -hmm. Most of the time, we have the same exact manager from the day we buy it until the day we sell it. I see. Mm -hmm. Occasionally, we have managers that don't do what they say they're going to do. They either don't put enough people into the property and mm -hmm. don't raise the rent on a regular basis, mm -hmm. or uh, the opposite is they spend like crazy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They think that they have to put in all these high-end upgrades in an area that doesn't support those upgrades. And it doesn't matter if you put in granite countertops or stainless steel appliances, people can only pay a certain amount. Sure, sure. So they have to be cost effective. Sure. So we've had, we've had two properties where we've gone through three managers mm -hmm. over the life over a five year period because they just, they didn't get it. And mm -hmm. so we, we try and teach them that this is not their property. This is our property and our business and our investors are expecting certain returns. Sure. And as long as what we're asking them to do is legal and ethical, mm -hmm. they need to do it. And if they don't do it, then we fire them and we bring in somebody new. Sure, sure. Now, speaking of property managers and sort of, you know, doing the oversight over them, Anthony, uh, can you maybe kind of share some of the sort of the regular checkpoints or reporting that happens like what are you seeing in that i mean there are a lot of soft skills as well as far as you know what the culture is how they address uh, uh, the you know sort of the existing residents and things like that can you share some of those uh, sort of uh, kpis or that culture uh, points and that kind of leads into whether they are performing properly or not, or perhaps it's time to change. Uh, how can someone identify some of those red flags? Absolutely. So the biggest thing is when, when 
we're interviewing a new property management company, one of the first things that we'll ask them is, how long will it take them to develop a budget for us on our property? Because they're supposed to be the local experts. They're the ones that are supposed to know how much of the income on a percentage basis goes to paying property taxes, how much on a percentage basis goes towards insurance, how much goes back in for maintenance and repairs, utilities. You know, once they get in there and they start looking at the property, they should be able to give us that information and create, help us create a budget for the property. Mm-hmm. I literally had one guy, one manager. As a matter of fact, this was the the number manager number two on one of our properties that we had three of them on. Mm-hmm. And I was with the student on a conference call, and I said, "Help us create a budget." And he he literally, I could hear him laughing on the phone. He just kind of went, "Budget? But no, no, you you own the property. We just tell you how much you need to give us. You give it to us, and we take care of the property. There's mm-hmm. no budget. Mm-hmm. It's like this is a business." Right. I don't know any Fortune 500 company out there that doesn't operate on a budget. Sure. And he was not willing to do it. I, we hung up the phone. I called the student right back and I said, start looking for a new one. You got 30 days to replace this guy. Sure. Mm-hmm. So that's one of the biggest things. They should be able to give you a budget. Now, sure. realistically, they may not be able to give it to you before they take over because they, they may not have access to some of that information. Sure, and and sure. each property is a little bit different Sure. depending on who is paying the utilities? Is it the renters that are paying the utilities or is it the owner that's paying the utilities? And the condition of the property and so on and so forth. But generally within 60 to 90 days of them taking over, they better be giving me a budget or we're looking for somebody new. So that's the big one. They have to be able to give you a budget. Uh, some of the other things I look for is I, I don't really get into the dress code and things like that because mm-hmm. we're hiring a third-party management company. They're sure. hiring the manager and putting them on site. Mm-hmm. I'm going to assume, at least at the beginning, that their company policy is going to tell that manager how they sure. need to dress. They need to dress sure. professionally. They don't have to dress in a suit and tie or a sure. dress, but they at least have to be nicely dressed. They may Mm -hmm. or may not wear a shirt that identifies the main property management company. I I don't care as long as they don't come in in holy jeans and a, you know, t-shirt or something like that. And they look like one of the residents. You want them to obviously dress better than that. But but for us, that's dress has never been an issue. Mm -hmm. Um, We want to make sure there are controls in place so that the manager on site knows they are never allowed to accept cash for Mm -hmm. a rental payment. And mm-hmm. they know that if they ever do accept cash without approval from their boss, it's immediate termination I because see. it's too easy for them to get sticky fingers. And we've mm-hmm. had a couple instances like that where the managers have accepted cash, got sticky fingers, and we were missing money and they were immediately fired. And one person we actually turned over to the police because it was, it was theft. They had a, and unfortunately, the manager wasn't uh, went in to do, I think it was about two months about every two months she would go in and do an audit Mm -hmm. and found out that this person had actually systematically skimmed something like 14 or Mm $15,000 from residents and from the rents that Mm -hmm. were coming in. And so Mm -hmm. we turned over the police and she ended up going to jail for theft. So we're not talking about 20 bucks here or a hundred bucks there. We're we're talking about a pretty significant amount of money that only happened once in 15 years. So Mm -hmm. um, we, we do a pretty good job of checking those things. Uh, let's see what else. Uh, other things we look for in a manager. Again, we want to know how connected they are to the community. How open are they to suggestions? Mm-hmm. Matter of fact, one of the things we've tried to implement with a couple of our properties is something called payday leases. Uh, Sakar, have you ever heard of a payday lease? No, actually, no. I mean, 
a heard of payday for a lot of other things, but uh, not payday leases. <laughs> yeah, so so a payday lease is where some some residents, especially in C class properties, nobody ever taught them how to handle money. Sure. As a matter of fact, there's a there's a gentleman out there called his name is T. Harb Eckert, and he teaches a thing called the Millionaire Mind. And sure, sure. Millionaire Mind in test, intensive. Mm-hmm. And he goes through a, a, a section in his book and in his workshop where he asks you to think about what you remember your parents and other people around you when you were a little kid. What did they tell you about money? And of course, all the things come up. Money doesn't grow on trees. Uh, money's the root of all evil, all the bad things. Of course, some people are like, yeah, you know, invest to make money, work hard to make money, those types of things. Sure. Well, the biggest one, of course, is the money's the root of all evil because literally there are people out there their mindset is i was taught that money is the root of all evil therefore if i have money i must be evil mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. i have to get rid of all my money so as soon as they get a paycheck and they cash the paycheck and they've got 100 200 300 500 bucks in their pocket what are they doing they're immediately right they're going out and they're spending it mm-hmm. because they need to get rid of it so they're not evil and they, they're not right they're not taught to save that money to pay the rent at the beginning of the month. Sure. <laughs> so what we did is we learned a technique called payday leases where you redo your lease. So your resident, instead of paying once a month, they pay every time they get paid. Sure. <laughs> so if they get paid once a week, they pay the rent once a week. If they get paid every two weeks, they pay every two weeks. <laughs> and the nice part is you actually end up collecting more money because, and by the way, this is not underhanded or anything. This is written in the lease, the resident <laughs> knows. If you choose to pay on the first of every month, this mm-hmm. is how much you're going to pay on the first of every month. <laughs> if you choose to pay once a week or every two weeks, depending on what you get paid, mm-hmm. it's going to be a little bit more. And by the time that little bit more adds up over the course of a 12 month period, mm-hmm. they actually pay 13 months of rent. And it's written right in the lease and they know exactly that. So if, if their rent is $500 a month, that's 6,000 a year. But if they pay every two weeks, they're going to pay $6,500 in rent. <laughs> and a lot of people would say, well, wait a second. If these people are already struggling with money, aren't you taking more advantage of them? And to me, I would say no, because look how much money they're saving in their late fees. Sure. They're actually <laughs> saving money by paying every two weeks as opposed to paying late every single month because they are not taught, they weren't taught to save their money so that they had enough money at the beginning of the month to pay the rent. So uh, it's kind of a, hopefully a good little side tangent, but you were asking, what do we look for? Well, some of our managers will go to them and we'll ask them to implement this program and immediately they'll just say, no, it won't work. We won't do that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's like, have you ever done this before? No, because it won't work. Our our residents won't do that. Right. (laughs) I try, I did, I actually had a manager who told me that. And so what I did is I tried to do an end around and I went directly to the onsite manager who mm-hmm. then went directly to some of the residents who were constantly paying late. Mm-hmm. They actually wrote letters to the manager saying, oh my God, you need to implement this program. This would be fantastic. I would love to be able to pay on this program. Sure, sure. The manager mm-hmm. still would not implement the program. Oh boy. <laughs> now, rather than fire him, we actually ended up selling the properties, which is in essence the same thing. Because sure. he wasn't willing to do it. But we have other managers who are, and the ones that are willing to, listen and try new things. I, I love those managers, even if they don't work, because you don't know until you actually try it. 
Sure, sure. Now, and there's so much to be said about that very point, Anthony, there is that, you know, obviously property managers are uh, pretty much controlling your entire investment and the culture they establish, how properly they are treating and whether they are uh, sort of enforcing the policies and things like that. I mean, cannot say enough uh, things about all of that. Uh, I mean, you know, the returns and your profitability is directly pretty much tied to uh, all of their performance as well. Now, speaking of the, uh, on a related topic there, Anthony, that you know, how you kind of uh, synthesize about uh, when you go in a market, like are you taking feedback from property managers for uh, perhaps how much rent growth we can expect or what are some of the uh, industries or headquarters moving into the area to kind of understand that whole uh, sub-market movement uh, uh, that goes into, uh, you know, uh, sort of uh, making these decisions. Are you like, so, uh, and this question goes more into, uh, you know, sort of that purchasing decisions and sort of the pre-vetting uh, uh, phase there is that, are you like kind of networking with property managers ahead of time, uh, you know, and kind of also dovetails into the budgeting aspect that you were mentioning that, hey, what are we looking from a budget standpoint if if we're looking into doing some improvements or perhaps you know taking care of deferred maintenance and things like that yeah i'm not really networking with them ahead of time because a lot mm -hmm. of times the deals are coming to me from some of my students sure but one of the things that i do teach my students and i follow as well is mm -hmm. when we're going into a market mm -hmm. you have to talk to at least three property managers that manage that type of property. It may be more. You might have to try five or six or seven or even eight, depending sure. on the size of the market. Mm -hmm. Some of them won't even talk to you. Some of them will. And of course, sometimes students will say, well, wait a second, why would a property manager give me some of the information that you want me to ask them? Sure. It's, it's easy. They want your business. They want to manage your property for you. Absolutely. So, mm -hmm. so absolutely. One of the things that we do, and it's not about what the seller tells you. Mm -hmm. We've had sellers tell us again and again, oh, you can raise the rent $100 a month. Oh, you can, <laughs> you can increase the occupancy. Oh, you can decrease the expenses. Well, mm. I've had sellers tell me that they have 5% vacancy and I've got a, some software that I use that, that I put together where I can put in their rent roll for mm. the last 12 to 24 months and it will show exactly what their economic vacancy has been. Sure. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't matter if they have 95% occupancy. What I want to know is how many people are paying full rent on time every single month for the sure. last year. Mm -hmm. And we've had a couple of properties that came in in the 20 to 25% vacancy range. Wow. Mm -hmm. And so when you sh I show that spreadsheet to the seller, it's like, okay, how are you going to argue this one when this is your own numbers? Sure, sure, sure. Anyway, um, so... Um, one of the, so one of the things that I, I tell my students to do is, is it's not about what the seller tells you. It's about what you can prove. It, it's great. I mean, if you look on a pro forma analysis and you could raise the rent a hundred dollars per unit per month, that's fantastic. Sure. Prove it before you buy it. Right. So what they do is they go out and there's a couple different things they can do. They need to talk to at least three property managers that manage that type of property in that area mm -hmm. and ask them and don't say, Hey, can we raise the rent a hundred dollars a month? Mm -hmm. Ask them what they think the rent should be. As a matter of fact, one of the things they should ask them for is a market analysis, mm -hmm. a rental analysis, or something some people call it a rental survey. Sure. And that mm -hmm. rental survey will look at things just like an appraisal on a single family home. Mm -hmm. It'll look at the, the unit mix, one bedroom, two bedroom, studio, three bedroom, whatever. Mm -hmm. It'll look at the square footage. It'll sure. look at the number of bed, uh, bathrooms. 
Uh, it'll look at the area. It'll look at whether utilities are or not included. It'll look at the amenities. Is there a pool? Is there a playground? Is there parking? You know, what are all the other things that come with it? Sure, sure. And then what they'll do if they know what they're doing is they'll give you a side-by-side -side comparison of all the competitive properties mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and what they truly think you should be able to get for rent. Sure. And, mm -hmm. if, and if you ask those three managers, hey, I'm looking for somebody to hire when I buy this property. And if there's one on site already, you can ask the one that's on site to provide the rental survey. Sure. You, you take them and look at them side by side. Certainly the one that's already in the property, to, to use a cliche, already has a dog in the hunt. So sure. I, I look at it, but I don't necessarily put a lot of faith in it. Mm -hmm. I want to mm -hmm. look at the other three independent ones mm -hmm. and see what they say about the market rent. Sure. sure. I want to see, and not only should they be asking about market rent, they should be asking about market vacancy. Mm -hmm. They should be asking about market expenses mm -hmm. on each one of those units. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. ultimately you want to ask them as a manager. And here's a, here's a great question. If, if the manager doesn't tell me how they're going to make me more money because that's their job mm -hmm. is I ask them. So at some point in the interview, I'm going to say, when all this is said and done, it, the very last question I'm going to ask them if they haven't brought it up is I'm going to look at them in, in the eye and say, if I hire you, how are you going to make me and my investors more money and increase the value on this property, both through, through cash flow and, and appreciation or equity buildup? Mm -hmm. How mm -hmm. are you going to do that? Sure. Mm -hmm. And if they don't have an answer, they're not getting hired. And of I course, see. if they do have an answer, I'm going to write it down. And in three months, six months, 12 months, I'm going to be looking at that information to see if they actually did what they said they were going to do. Because sure. a lot of times that's another thing you'll see is managers will tell you they'll talk a great game and then they won't follow through. Sure, sure, sure. Uh, that, I mean, loved, loved everything that you said, Anthony, there. I think uh, the devil is in details. I mean, when you're looking at sort of these rent surveys, as you pointed out, all the amenities, the square footage, you know, what sort of facilities, of, of, you know, sort of that asset has. And these are the folks on the ground that can kind of tell you exactly that what, what shifts are happening, whether it's realistic to get that a uh, hundred dollar uh, bump and things like that. Uh, I mean, I'm always cautious uh, that, uh, I mean, hundred dollars may doesn't seem a whole lot, but when you talk to residents and when we are see, talking about rents and things like that, it is extreme. I mean, unless you are in a very hot market with a lot of uh, movement going on, you can, you can see that, but otherwise be very cautious and be very sort of gradual about how you are uh, sort of escalating your rents and things like that. So uh, absolute gold uh, points there. Uh, now, Anthony, you are a seasoned investor. You see in market cycles and things like that. Obviously, we are going through this whole COVID pandemic as we are speaking uh, here in late July of 2020 here. Um, how are you kind of uh, sort of seeing the market uh, as we are kind of going up and down, whether cases are going up, cases are going down? Obviously, the office, the retail, I mean, hotel industry has pretty much shaken up at this point. But as we move through this cycle and uh, kind of go through, let's say, 2020, 2021, what are some of your thoughts in terms of uh, how, how things you think will develop moving forward? And, and, and of course, I'm referring specifically to multifamily here. Sure. Yeah, I, so it, it depends on the area of the country, because right now there's a lot of doom and gloom out there in the media. There are, I can read different articles in the same week about how sure 
vacancy rates or, or collections, rent collections are in the 70% range, 70 to 75%. And then I'll read another article that says it's in the 85 to 90% collection range. Same week, sure. just two different articles. It depends on where they're getting their information from. I'm not saying that, sure. that either article is wrong or one's trying to be paying a bad picture or, or a better picture than the other. Sure. It depends on where their data is coming from. Sure. If you ask me, Right now, I think I'm I'm around the just over 500 unit range for uh, for apartments. Mm -hmm. Our collections have been fine. We have a couple of people who haven't paid because of COVID. Sure. We have a couple of people who haven't paid, and they're using COVID as an excuse because mm -hmm. right? mm -hmm. they know they can't be evicted. Sure. Well, overall, though, we're still in the mid, roughly the mid 95 collection percent collection range. Sure. So maybe mm -hmm. 92 to 95 percent. Mm -hmm. So we're doing great. But again, to, to get that average of 75% collections, well, if we're at 93%, obviously there's somebody out there that is in the 70% range. Sure. Mm -hmm. I think it depends on um, the, the quality of the residence that people put in. And of course, the area where it is, the area of the country, and then the area where the property is specifically within a metropolitan area. Mm. Is it in an area where it's a lower end area where people are going to be more impacted by the loss of income and the loss of jobs? Sure. Mm. Where I see it going is I think in the next six to 12 to 24 months, you're going to see more foreclosures for apartments come on the market. Interesting. I, mm -hmm. I think there are some owners out there who do not have enough reserves set aside. Mm -hmm. And there is a moratorium in a lot of states still on evicting residents. Sure. There's mm -hmm. also a moratorium on foreclosures. Mm -hmm. So banks are stuck. They can't foreclose even if they're not getting payments. Mm -hmm. And landlords are stuck because they can't evict somebody who's not making payments. And, and a lot of that I get. I get that there are people who are stuck and, and they can't sure. pay the rent and it's not their fault. Sure. But I also know that there's a lot of government help out there. There, there's a lot of assistance. There's a lot of states that are giving extra unemployment benefits. Mm -hmm. There shouldn't be, there should be very, very few people that don't have enough income coming in to still be able to pay the rent. Mm -hmm. Now, what I think is going to happen is because some of these owners don't have enough reserves set aside, they've probably already gone to a bank and asked for something called a forbearance agreement so they can get caught up later on. Sure. Well, what's going to happen with these especially on the smaller buildings, right? If you have a, a sixplex and half of the people haven't been paying rent for four months, I know there's a lot of people out there that are like, oh, we want rent forgiveness. You need to just forget the rent and, give, and forgive us for the rent and then we'll pick it up when this whole COVID thing is over and we get our jobs back. Well, I, I, you know, I understand it from their point of view, but I also understand it from my point of view as an owner and from yeah. the other residents' point of view who are paying rent. If I, if you haven't paid rent for four months and I just forgive your rent, how is that fair to the other renters who have been paying rent for four months? Sure, sure. And Why bank, and bank, bank, by the way, hasn't yet forgiven your mortgage or anything. And the bank has not forgiven my mortgage either. All they've done is sure. delayed it. And depending on the bank that you're talking to, some banks will take whatever those payments are. Let's see if I can get my hands lined up. Whatever sure. those payments are over that three, four, five, six month period. And then what they'll do is when the foreclosure ban is lifted and you go into forbearance, 
they will take those payments and divide it over the next 12 months. So you have to make your regular mortgage payment plus one twelfth of whatever that balance is to get sure. caught up. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's going to be really tough for a lot of owners to do it. Now, some sure. other banks are, are just taking those payments and just moving them to the very end of the loan to begin with. Sure. So sure. that you're not, you don't have to make up for that until at the very, very end when you pay the loan off or if, you, if you're going to hold it long enough to pay it down. So what's, I think what's going to happen though is some of those owners who don't have enough reserves mm -hmm. and some of those residents that all of a sudden just decide at the end when foreclosure is lifted, mm -hmm. they're, they're not going to be able to, to come up with that money over the next 12 months either. Sure. They're just going to vanish. They're going to move from property A to property B before a foreclosure hits their credit report. Mm -hmm. They're going to move in and just start over. And those owners are never going to get that money back. And sure. therefore, they're not going to have the money to pay their mortgage payment to get out of forbearance. Sure. So I think what you're going to see is, like I said, 6 to 12 to 18 months after this whole thing is over and all the foreclosure and eviction moratoriums are lifted, you're going to see a really good opportunity for uh, people that are interested in buying apartments to, to take advantage of that. And by take advantage, I don't mean you're not taking advantage of the seller. It's sure, not sure. your fault they're in the position they're in. Mm -hmm. You're taking advantage of the opportunity that's available to you and potentially picking up some really good properties at some good prices. Very true, very true. And, and it is sort of analogous to what happened during 2008, 2009, that exactly. we kind of more or less went through that sort of financing debacle. And we saw, you know, all the good deals come by, probably it was 11, 12, 13, 14. I mean, you know, that was a great run up at that time. Now, Anthony, you are a coach yourself. You've seen many students, uh, uh, you know, sort of be successful. You sort of teach them on a daily basis. Uh, what are some of the characteristics uh, in a student or perhaps what do you look for in your experience that kind of sets the go-getters perhaps and what uh, sort of success metrics uh, you know students should have to become more successful in your opinion yeah great question the, the biggest thing that i see are this the more successful students are the ones that push forward they don't let fear get in their way uh, one of the big factors that a lot of people will have is well i'd love to buy a hundred unit apartment building but i don't have a million dollars for down payment and closing costs well, you don't need a million dollars for down payment and closing costs. You need to find other people that have a million dollars for down payment sure. and closing costs. <laughs> so you need to go out and start networking with other people in order to build that list up so you have the money available. These are people that don't let anything stop them. Well, I don't have any experience with multifamily. How do I talk to people? Well, that's one of the things they learn about in my boot camp. And then after the boot camp, I've got an eight-week follow-up coaching thing where we talk about some of those things that come up and I give them ideas on how to have conversations mm -hmm. with brokers and property managers and lenders. And it's, it's interesting because usually in every single class, there's one or two people at the end of the eight week period that said, you know what, you, you made me go out. And by the way, I didn't make them go out. I actually give them a, a, a written thing that they're uh, a list of things that they need to do over the next eight week period. Sure in chunks, right? So they don't have to do it all at once. They do mm -hmm. piece by piece by piece over the eight weeks. Mm -hmm. And one of the things you're supposed to do is go out and talk to real real estate agents, real property managers, real lenders, and real appraisers mm -hmm. in their target market or markets. Mm -hmm. And some of them were scared to death. It's like, well, I, you know, this is my first real boot camp. I, I only own my own single family home. I don't even have any investment property. And now you want me to go talk to these people? Sure. And inevitably somebody will come up at the end and, and, and say, oh my God, I couldn't believe it. I, I was talking to this person and everything was flowing great. And at the end of the conversation, I had to keep from laughing because one of the comments they made was, wow, you sound so knowledgeable. How long have you been investing in apartments? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right? And I didn't have the guts to tell them that 
I only owned my own single family home. So I, I, I just lied because I didn't know what else to say. And I told them I owned a, a couple hundred units or something like uh, that. It's like, uh, don't, don't do that. <laughs> but it's funny. But the, these are the people that are successful. They don't let that fear get in their way. Sure. Mm-hmm. They just take the information that you're taught and go through step by step and do it. You're going to be fine. And even if, even if they realize that you have no experience or you just flat out tell them, you don't have to hide anything. Just say, look, I'm working with another team of investors. And if they ask you how many units you own, you say, well, I own my own single family home, but how many multifamily? Well, I don't own any multifamily, but I'm working with a team of investors and we're out looking for this type of property in this area. Is this something you can help me with? Absolutely. <laughs> You'll find that some people, <clears throat> some people will talk to you and some people quite frankly won't. I, I actually, when I started up, I had a broker that told me, he's like, nope, I've worked with newbies before. I'm not working with newbies again. And it's like, okay, I understand that. But before they hang up, what do you do? Ask them for a referral to somebody else and say, okay, you don't work with newbies. Would you know Perhaps, anybody else? <laughs> but you know somebody, A, that you know and trust that you could refer me to. Sure. And then mm. could you do an introduction? Absolutely. Right? It's always better to have a warm introduction than just to call somebody out of the blue and say, hey, Billy Bob Smith over there told me that I should call you because I'm looking to buy an apartment building. Incredible, incredible. Love that piece of advice. And, and for viewers and listeners, I wanna underline that uh, phase where Anthony said that, could you make that introduction? I think that, incredibly gives you that leg up. And uh, I mean, I can personally share with our viewers that I have been connected to many higher ups where someone else introduced me to them that, hey, I just interviewed him on my podcast. Could you perhaps uh, be a guest on his podcast? And I have gone up to many big wigs as well. And same thing you can say to whether it is, you know, high profile brokers, whether it is, you know, uh, some of the inspectors and things like that. This in general is a relationship game and how you can navigate to get to people that you need. The best place to start is, as you indicated, Anthony, is that know the people who are doing it, ask for referrals and uh, kind of, you know, work your way up by, you know, doing your own due diligence there. So thank you, Anthony. I appreciate all your advice. Thank you for your time today. Uh, Kindly share with our listeners how they can find you and learn more about your uh, company. Absolutely. You can learn about me and more about me at successclasses.com, successclasses.com. Or you can email me, anthony at successclasses.com. Very simple and very succinct. Thank you for coming on. It's been a pleasure, Anthony. Uh, I think the more people can reach out to you and learn from you, uh, they are always, uh, you know, in in uh, uh, sort of in good state. So thank you. I appreciate your time today. Yeah, you're welcome, Sakar. Thank you so much. It was very fun, and I appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Premium Cash Flow Real Estate Investing Podcast. Please join us at premiumcashflow.com to sign up for weekly updates, research articles, and more. We will see you again for another great interview with an expert guest.